0: Welcome to Studio Visits with Silvereye where I get to talk in depth with some of the most interesting contemporary photographers working today about their latest projects. I'm David Oresik, the Executive Director of Silvereye Center for Photography. You can visit us online at silvereye.org to learn more about all of our programs and you can find a helpful glossary for all of these conversations. In this episode I spoke with Louis Palou, a Washington DC-based documentary photographer and filmmaker, His work often focuses on social justice and political issues, such as war, human rights, and poverty. Louis has received many awards and honors over the years, including a John Simon Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, a Harry Ransom Center Research Fellowship in the Humanities at the University of Texas at Austin, and a Milton Rogovan Fellowship at the University of Arizona. You can see selections from his project Arctic Passage in our gallery, starting on September 15th, as part of our new show, Honorably Mentioned. This conversation with Louis was an interesting change of pace because he's the first photojournalist we've had on the show. In this conversation, we cover a ton of ground, including the enduring influence of his working class parents on his work, what makes a compelling conflict photograph, and why the fight against climate change needs science and imagination. Enjoy the studio visit with Louis Palou. Louis Palou, welcome to Studio Visits with Silver Eye thanks for having me very exciting if you could start by kind of describing a little bit about what your photography practice was like uh before the arctic passage began Mm. and and how that how you kind of segued into the arctic passage project
1: everything that i've done is is built on this foundation of my experience with my parents who are immigrants from europe who were children in the second world war so um justice, human rights, violence, trauma, oral history was a very big thing. Something that was, and has even more so now become abundantly clear to me, is that I grew up with two parents who had a grade four and six education in Italian and came to Canada, just like immigrants would have come to America and had to learn a new language. And I remember seeing their notebooks. and I felt like they were like my elementary school notebooks. But they had to function in this adult world, and it you know this idea of of equality and being able to visualize the stories they told me. And I think that you know it really centered around the second world war. Anyone from that generation, it's hard for us to ever imagine you know having say soldiers come into your house if you know you're in Italy and having a gun pointed at you having your parents arrested, you know, in front of you. I mean these are. These are things that are life-defining, and I heard all these stories, and as soon as I became old enough to understand how to go to a library and pull out books, I immediately went to the war section, the World War II history. history. Hmm. And those pictures of the Second World War is how I started visualizing their experiences, and that's really, I think, the entry point of photography for me. And so, you know, I was really fortunate. I went to a uh, high school in Toronto, that had a very uh, incredible art program. Uh, Half your courses were art. You had to apply to get in. And the school was, you know, when I think back, the school had to have been at least 50% immigrants from everywhere, all over the world. And a very, and a lot of those, you know, unlike America in many ways at that time, this is in the eighties, a lot of the immigrants were West Indian. So a lot of anyone of color was uh, from Jamaica, and they were migrant workers like my father was. So it was kind of this community of people who were under uh, uh, sort of this white Anglo-Saxon order, you could say. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took a photography class there. And I immediately thought, wow, I can go and hear other people's stories that remind me of my parents. And it felt very personal. Now, I will say it's very easy to tell this narrative now, because I have this 50 years of life and all these decades of sort of this faculty of photography that I've practiced and studied. But back then, I think it was just intuitive. I was an emotional pull. Mm. And so, um, you know, this eventually rotated and this starts the connection to the Arctic is to understanding Canada and understanding mm. what being Canadian was. And I really felt like, you know, it's funny, there was a revolution here and the Royal, the monarchy was thrown out of power in America, but in Canada, the queen is on everything. So I really never connected to that. But I connected to workers. My parents were workers. My mom worked in a factory as a seamstress. My dad was a stonemason. And my first project was in the mines. And so my father began working up there in a stone quarry. And it was near a lot of mining areas. And I immediately was attracted to this, this, this place that had the unknown. And where, mm. you know, I, I would go there and, and see people experiencing fundamentally what my parents experienced, you know.
0: What, when did you, these miners photos that you shared with me, yep. what, uh, when did you make those?
1: So that project started in 1991, which is the year I graduated from co- art college. And it's the, it started sort of in the fall after I had also worked as an intern in New York city to Mary Ellen Mark, the photographer, Mary Ellen Mark. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was, it was a, a really incredible experience for me because, you know, here's a kid from Toronto in a place where, you know, there's hardly any well-known photographers to the world headquarters of most of the well-known famous photographers at the time. And she was an incredible teacher. And I think what I, I really felt like two things I got working for her was one always be a student, not just of photography, but of, of what's going on in the world. Uh, Listen, listen a lot, you know? Hmm. And I think that, these miners, after my parents became sort of these teachers of this, this sort of this part of the world that we're all part of. Because, you know, in 1991, there were no smartphones, you know, when we thought of metals. Metals were like, I guess the things we don't think about it were like, you know, electricity, copper, mm-hmm. you know, these mines are all hard rock mines. There's no coal. Everybody thinks of coal right away. In Canada, it's all hard rock, gold, copper, and nickel. And Canada's sort of in this top three countries that produce these, what are known as essential kind of minerals.
0: As a, you know, as a very young photographer beginning this project, what did you learn about photographing working people? Because in a way, it strikes me that you've sort of stayed within a subject matter of of an interest in, in people's doing their jobs. You, you know,
1: I think at first... Obviously I was interested in the, the narrative of seeing people who kind of were like my mom and my dad,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, not a lot of people had passed the grade 12 education. I mean, some had less, you know, and they were going to do these jobs that nobody really wanted to do. They were in places that were pretty unknown and anonymous. The got the people I looked up to were those workers, you know, no one really went to bars at least in my parent circle. They had house parties, mm. you know, so there'd be all these, there There'd be all these men and women at the table playing cards usually and all of them smoked so heavily welders painters carpenters and th- the men were built like tanks and i thought i admired that but they were built like that because they had this job that defined that made them become physically like that and a lot of the women that i knew this is very much still the identity of that area even if the plants aren't operating the skeletons and, and uh, of the of the facilities and or the legacies are still very much in your city. And I think that uh, when I got there, these people I admired it quickly, because I, I didn't follow my dad to work as much as much as I did some work with my dad. All these stories that I had of my mom in factories, she had long retired from those jobs. But now I was like, wait a second. Here I admired and now I was upset and or angry because it's like, hey, so-and-so got, he got silicosis from working underground. So-and-so has lung cancer from the diesel fumes in the factory.
0: Um, I wanted to transition and talk about uh, another major phase in your work, and that is your um, foreign war reporting, uh, specifically your work in Afghanistan. And I know in our earlier conversations, you talked a lot about the importance of editing to your work and, and how um, editing is is as important and as uh, kind of difficult as um, the photographing itself. What have you learned about picking photos that tell the story? Instead of
1: telling the story, which I think is important, I think my approach has more been, at least for me, about asking a question and stirring a dialogue. I think really, I think there's work that just is like, you know, there's photographers who just take that single photo, and I don't believe in always the single photo classic icon. I'm I'm not into that. Obviously, I do projects with a hundred pictures and more sometimes. But I think that you know, when you get to my work from Afghanistan, the 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 soldier eating grapes, yeah, the soldier eating grapes. I think this is one of those photos, and I think it was just very intuitive, and it comes a little bit out of sort of the subconscious I have of my art history. You know, pe- people have likened this to say a Caravaggio painting um but i i I you know it's this bounty bounty of nature, the grapes and the bounty of of sort of industrial humankind, the bullets, you know,
0: mm-hmm. and here's
1: this soldier in a country that has known nothing about war, and so what are we giving them, and what is the land what does nature give you, and what do we make to give back or to ourselves? you know, and I just felt like this is probably one of my favorite i don't like calling it a war photograph, but for those of you who do use those terms. Kind of one of my favorite war photographs, because after covering so many wars over the years, I really felt like pictures of people shooting guns don't don't say much. And I, I think in the photos I gave, I only gave three from Afghanistan. I don't think there's anyone firing a weapon actually and and you can talk about war and lot and I, I think it's important to show pictures sometimes of of the the effects of violence or the like dead bodies that, you know, in a very thoughtful way, in a very calculated way. How am I a part of this? You know, what what can I change? Like, who is this soldier and why is he eating grapes? And then people who want to go online, they'll find out that Kandahar is famous for grape growing. And it's one of the most famous places for raisins, you know, and it talks about history and it, it talks about industry and the West and the East and you know, and sort of how we're connected from all the way over here to this guy all the way over there. Like, where were those bullets made? You know, who designed them?
0: One thing that stands out, I mean, several things stand out to me about this photograph. You know, I think simply just one, the way he's eating the grapes, just like biting into the whole bunch of grapes, like it is so really beautiful. It's kind of tender the way he's like holding the bunch of grapes. He's got this kind of weathered look and The one thing I keep returning to is the sense of scale in this photo, which is that he seems kind of small, right? Like, and maybe it's that the bullets look really big. Maybe the bullets just are really big, but he seems like he's kind of got a small frame, uh, and his jacket is almost too big for him, and he's very human.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's it's funny you mentioned a jacket. I never thought of it like that. But my automatic answer is was because these uniforms were made for probably American soldiers, and it's surplus. From yeah. past
0: wars, you know oh, of course, that's so interesting that the jacket's too big because it's not his jacket. I was really interested in this photo of the the soldier holding the bird that you shared with me. Can you tell me about that photograph
1: That's a minor bird, and it was a common pet for a lot of the Afghan soldiers to have and I just felt like you know when're when you're in a firefight when you're in a battle yeah you know, at first there's a shock of the, it's audio that really gets you. It's how sound, how loud it is. But you really realize like bees are still flying by. They're not like, hey, they're shooting. Let's run from here. (laughs) Bees are flying by. Birds are flying around. If there's gunshots, birds will scatter. But you know, the plants keep growing. The winds are blowing the grass. Like you're still in nature and nature Nature's a power that's ever present. I always felt like, you know, a lot of these minor birds with the soldiers, the Afghan soldiers would do with clip their wings or tails so they couldn't get away. So they immediately become r- reliant on you. <laughs> and it kind of made me think of, in some ways, like Afghan soldiers, not that they're pets to the Western soldiers, but they're reliant on the West, you know, so, and they gotta, their wings are clipped to a certain degree as well. They can't really call in an airstrike like, like American soldiers can. So there's like this reliance,
0: you know. Can you tell me about this photo with the purple smoke rising?
1: Yeah, you know, um, a lot of a lot of my inspirations for my visuals is an, the experiential, and I love cinema. I mean, you, you can't take any pictures of any smoke grenades unless, you know, Apocalypse, now, you've seen Apocalypse Now, or if you haven't seen Apocalypse Now, you kind of need to watch it. Storaro. The Italian cinematographer he had a really brilliant uh way of seeing and using color and uh you know I, I covered I covered the South Afghanistan on and off uh but for pretty much five years and when I got home my brain was still my part of me was still over in Afghanistan there's like a lag trying to adjust mm-hmm. back from sort of what is like earth to the moon I just kind of thought of it like essays like a poet Instead of one big body of work, so here this group of soldiers is using this smoke grenade to tell a drone operator not to drop a a missile on them that you know from a drone there' are just these little shapes moving around, and that wherever the smoke right. is that is not the enemy, so that's what was happening in this photograph
0: you know wow I mean it's so striking and it's so you know, completely otherworldly. I mean, you, you sort of talked about the, the moon landscape and the mind and the, mm-hmm. the moon landscape here in Southern Afghanistan. It's, it's um, just, you know, with this purple smoke rising, it's right, It's like a science fiction movie set or something. It's, it's
1: Yeah, it also talks about the, the, the change in technology of war. So here, these soldiers have put their gun down, they're not holding it, they're just sitting there, and there's a drone operator from who knows where, could even be in, in the United States, operating a remote control flying robot and fighting the enemy for them i mean it really is like futuristic kind of dystopian uh war and and these you know when i'm taking this photograph i will tell you i'm i'm not like hmm i'm gonna be talking to david one day and i'm explaining (laughs) that i'm not i'm just thinking this is what the war looks like right now i'm here as an independent witness you know in some ways I'm like a hybrid. Part of me is an artist.
0: Well, and, and I was thinking about your your earlier kind of interest in, in saying how you were you were inspired by, by working class people and thinking about people doing their jobs. Did that influence how you related to the soldiers and, and thought about depicting them?
1: Yeah, totally. You know, they're a lot of them are from Northern Florida and they're 21 years old. And, you know, I'm not sure how many of them went to college yet, you know. And the eight they're all 20 21 years 19 years old some had been to iraq some had done five tours and i just thought you know afghanistan is not vietnam but some of the structures that that allow the recruiting of that working class is you know how the the advertising is targeted and um and in no way am i you know people who want to serve it's volunteer now not like vietnam where it was mandatory for a lot of people um in no way am i criticizing the people who choose and want to serve their country <laughs> But i think it's a structure that should you should recognize to see how it's happening to your neighbors your friends because i think what's the most incredible thing about veterans is when they come back they're teachers you could listen to them like they're your neighbors they're your father your friend's fathers your sisters mothers and you know i think that there's a lot to learn from that journey they had. You know, I'm in touch with all those Marines still, and I'm I, I sort of follow what they've all done. Some are firefighters; they live all over the country, and they're workers again.
0: Yeah. Again, I I love how your work is so humanizing to the to your subjects. Um, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk about your most recent work. Not not too long ago, you began the Arctic Passage project, which uh, which as I, I you know I said in the opening is. Kind of kind of a different kind of story um to tell, but I'm but I'm sure it has a lot of connections. How did that get started?
1: The the great thing about growing older is sort of, you know, we can call it a tool or a resource of memory. I react to subject matter, usually it's a it's I feel it. Like, oh, I, I'm really interested in this. And I think that a lot of artists work that way from what I've heard them tell me. What ended up happening is after covering all that war, I, I just couldn't really see myself putting myself in those places anymore with arctic passage a lot of the veterans i knew who had come back from the war in the military were now starting to take posts you know in quieter places like in the arctic i grew up in a generation where in the cold war you know there's this this is a test of the emergency warning system Mm -hmm. and that might have been for some people where there were storms but for where i was growing up and for a lot of people i know it was for possible nuclear war. I, I kind of connected those two things, this sort of past history of my own myself, and I always had wanted to do something to do with the Cold War. You know, art became as I grew older. Art became something that uh, helped me figure things out, helped me look at things and be like, oh, okay, that's how I felt about that, or that's what I didn't understand, or that is very unresolved, that needs resolving. And uh, the Cold War was definitely something, but. You know, how do I go photograph the Cold War when it's over? And there's a little known to a lot of people radar line that runs from Alaska through Canada to Greenland. And it was was called the distant early warning line. And now called the North Warning System. And that has been in operation since about the late 50s through to now. Hmm. Um, technology changing. And uh, with climate change, there is there's more activity or thinking about activity up in the Arctic. I just thought, what is this lost frontline look like you know I really I've always been fascinated by Russian filmmaking like Tarkovsky uh, films like Stalker uh, Solaris these places where kind of like Vietnam where we go there and we're trying to change the place to suit us and it ends up changing us I, I want what does it look like what's going on up there and what I really found out is that the Arctic is about mostly about preparing for the unknowns or it is about the unknown in Canada, or at least in a lot of people who study the Arctic, what comes up is the Franklin Expedition. Right. You know, the British expedition in the 1800s, to make it a short story. They took two ships and they were looking for they were looking for a shortcut through the Arctic. There had to be a northwest passage, a shortcut to the India. You know, go over North America, boom, you're right down in, in Asia. They sailed these two ships up there, uh, and they vanished. Thirty, I think over 30 expeditions went looking for them. And what really essentially happened is is They went up there with two technologies. Uh, One technology was tinned food, like military rations. So they could go up there and stay a long time, except that they found the the rations later on. They were soldered with lead, which caused Mm. illness amongst the fact that the ships were not made to go through the Arctic passage. They were crushed, they sunk, everybody died. There was cannibalism. And uh, the other thing that went up there as a technology was photography and the camera was never found. Mm. I imagine these like daguerreotypes Frozen. Here I am using, you know, the, the whole idea of imagination and inventing this idea that maybe there are these frozen. I knew they aren't there, but and I thought, what would those pictures look like What, what, what could we use. How could I use this idea of imagining things and using ice and melting ice and photographs that are objects that aren't real, but that are windows of imagination or tools of imagination. I, when I started going up the Arctic. And, and, and following this narrative of the military being up there is there are all these big radar stations and it looks like, like, again, it's invented narratives like planet Hoth and, you know, empire strikes <laughs> back, like life imitates art or vice versa. Or you know, we go up to the Arctic, there are communities spread out, but the vast majority of the Arctic is uninhabited, you know? Right. Uh, in Canada, the vast majority of its Arctic is, is indigenous land. It's mostly in Nunavut. Um, you know, are there photographs of these places? just documents of what they look like for history and
0: Yeah. so if I, if I can stop you for, for a little bit, it's, it sounds like this idea of exploration and imagination and personal history and all these kind of, um, histories and tales and, and myths and, and and realities kind of mm-hmm. drew you, drew you back to the Arctic to to try to figure out what the story was. And and my question was, who who did you actually meet when you went when you went there?
1: A lot of times I met a lot of soldiers, and it was always who I was traveling with because you know, uh, say I went to a community like say Joe Haven, it's mostly an Inuit hamlet there are uh inuit soldiers part of a, a volunteer unit the Canadian military has called rangers Canadian rangers so i would spend time with them and the way i thought of them is i'm here as a student um these are my these are going to be my teachers i'm here to listen and they welcomed me in a lot some a lot of times i got invitations to go to places and i like like the workers i lived with them I spent days some some days I I spent days without taking photographs and it was about building in a loose sense kind of a collaboration you know
0: Mm -hmm. where Mm
1: -hmm. I made sure I understood the way they their relationship was to the land and I think that that's when I really understood that that the real power is nature I mean we tend to think we have this humans like this so-and-so has achieved power they have taken power but really there is no political position that could beat a tidal wave or bolt of lightning or, you know, or rising global temperatures, you know, and this idea that we're destroying the planet. Well, what I kind of came to is that we're not destroying the planet. We're destroying the environment. We need to survive. The planet will destroy us actually. You know, this, this photo, This is in a a place called Clyde river. It's on the Eastern shore of Baffin Island up in the Arctic. And this is training for search and rescue. And the incredible thing about training photographs in the Arctic is you train on a military base, anywhere else, usually nothing, you know, the odd accident, nothing's going to happen to you when you train in minus 50, you're Mm -hmm. in it, you know, maybe the event you're preparing for isn't happening. But when it's minus 50 and you lay in the water like this, you know, you could yeah. you could you could get hurt. The I don't want to think about fighting against nature or it's the enemy. But what I would say is where on earth is there a place where the air can kill you? People laugh. It's always abs- the absurdity. I like the absurdity sort of theme around war because it is absurd. Is this absurdity of that it's not that cold because it's only minus 30 or minus 34 that day. <laughs> Sometimes you take photos. Like, it takes a while to find them. Like this picture. This, it's an ice melting device for making water to to take to shave and to clean yourself. You know. Oh yeah. And, and it just looks like here nature is making it look like this post-industrial decades ago scene of little smokestacks producing some product we need to live our lives or or, or exist. This trip. There were two trips. I, I went on a lot of trips where it was super cold, but these two trips were so cold that in many ways it was almost impossible to operate. We, we couldn't go out of town. It was too cold. The snowmobiles wouldn't start. Um, and one of the things they unloaded at the back of that plane were wooden, hand-constructed sleds of Inuit design. Because up there, if you're going to go anywhere, that's what you need. And they're held together with rope, and it's just wood. No nails, no screws, no glue, no, no smartphones, you know. <laughs> and a lot of these, a lot of these soldiers I went around with, um, that were volunteer soldiers that were inuit, knew how to travel by where the sun was or the the lines on the snow from the wind. It, it, it was an incredible experience to see that, you know, having a connection to nature is not only just a beautiful thing and a thing to protect our planet, but actually for some people, it's just daily life and function, you
0: know? Yeah. When you exhibit this work at South by Southwest, you um, you decided to, to kind of, you know, what I think of as a very sculptural, uh, kind of performative approach of, of freezing the photographs themselves inside mm-hmm. of blocks of ice.
1: Yeah, the idea kind of started around five, more than five years ago in 2015. So I'd read that Franklin book and I immediately thought, this art school side of my practice, my training came out and I thought, whoa, I made a print and I, I didn't have a freezer. So I went to my mom's house and I took an old eight by 10 photo tray and I, I figured out how to freeze a print in the middle of the ice. And it sounds like it's easy, but it's not. And I just so it started out like that and I made ice blocks and I, I thought, well, I never thought of an exhibition. I just thought, and I'm always looking for alternative venues. You know, I just think that just because I'm a photojournalist, I can't go hang an exhibition or have an installation. Because when I went to art school, I didn't just study photography. I took experimental drawing. I took sculpture. You know, I I, I had this Mm multidisciplinary. I didn't study photojournalism. That's kind of self-taught. But also, I thought it was interesting because South by Southwest is this place about big ideas, and I always talk about big ideas, and that photography is a tool of imagination. And so we made these test blocks, and and this guy at the ice company – He was just like wow i you know usually i'm making something for a wedding or a party now i'm making this piece where people and it was incredible was we had a great audience i think audience is always important to consider when you're doing work and people brought their kids and the people were touching it and it was melting and people were sad that the ice was melting i think that's what struck me the most about when i had the exhibition was not whether I would made art where people thought it was aesthetically exciting, was people touch the ice and they are like, "Oh my God, the Arctic is melting."
0: Um, yeah, no, I mean it's 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 interesting, and 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 to me, you know, thinking about the the big South by Southwest blocks, just having that moment and then they're gone. I mean, it, it's such a such a powerful metaphor for what we're facing with climate change, right? That, that it's yeah. there is no there is no freezer to put our climate back in.
1: I think what's incredible about this too is, look, there are people who are inventing narratives about whether climate change is real or not. And what it really comes down to is the ultimate scientists that I've learned are the Inuit. You know, they're the original scientists of the Arctic. It's about observation and collecting information, about passing information on. You know, it doesn't take long to sit down for days and weeks with elders, Inuit elders, where they explain to you how how nature works and how things have changed.
0: What were the the indigenous people's observations about how, how the climate has changed? What did they tell you?
1: Animal populations shrinking, smaller groupings or or landscapes of ice over, you know, most of the Arctic is a sheet of ice over water. Water bodies that they couldn't travel through at certain times of the year, they now can travel through. Uh, animals that normally they go hunting for, uh, say in May appear in March. Um, routes that animals travel through have changed. The numbers of animals have changed the, the behavior of animals. Um, so it's not
0: like little subtle things. These are like major, yeah, major changes.
1: Um, Yeah. Like, Hey, let's go hunting. So they go somewhere and they're like, Whoa. My snowmobile nearly went through the ice because it's too thin, or it's melting, or I can't go there anymore. There is no ice. There is a, a a massive a massive thing happening up there, and I think we need to all pay attention. But this is very very big, and our very existence on this planet is is going to depend on how how we how we manage policy as either voters and or the people who photograph it or the scientists studying it or, or the, the companies or the people, the, the stakeholders, a lot of the indigenous people up there are a part of that conversation.
0: Yeah, I, I guess and I have kind of one last question um, that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. I know you've kind of alluded to this um, at the beginning uh, or at some other points in the conversation, which is what do you think of as the difference or is there a difference between art and photojournalism
1: that is a really good and hard and very welcome question to sort of almost wrap up. There's another label, documentary. Yes. And what I, I always found ironic about documentary, because a lot of photojournalists are like, I'm doing a documentary project, is sort of a lot of people feel as though the inventor or the beacon of documentary still photography is Dorothea Lang, whose most famous work was done for the U.S. government, which if you go into a code of ethics for photojournalism, you're definitely not allowed to get paid for and work for the government. But it was a different time. Right. Even then, journalism was a lot of different things that we would question now. I think time can forgive some things. I think that what I'm attracted to is, it comes back to my parents, is history and some sort of accuracy to a level. Because in the end, photo- photographs aren't real. You know, They're not the real mm. thing, the representations of it. But they give us a window or a tool to understand something in the past. It could be personal, like this is a picture of my parents. And I could say, yeah, that's my dad and that's my mom. My ID card, that's me on my passport. You know, there is a function to the documentation, the documentary sort of quality or function of photography. And I think that I like to hang on to that. It, it, it goes to my heart of me trying to understand who I am and it all sort of the seed of it is my parents' history in the Second World War and, and how that shaped me emotionally. And as a person, and how I feel about the world, and how I feel about justice and democracy and and human rights, and so I think when it comes to that, I do feel like uh, there is a, a function of journalism where you get it published, and then uh, then then it gets it goes away, and then some mm-hmm. new come the new piece of you know, and I just feel like in art that cycle doesn't exist as much, and I think that. The idea of the archive, you know, where it's, it's a sustained study of something. It makes you challenge journalism too and who the journalist is and who the author and what their attentions are. So I think, I think that's where the intersection point happens.
0: It's interesting, I think the, the thing that I was thinking about that, that you mentioned was that, that idea about time, especially as it relates to the archive, right? That perhaps photojournalism and art kind of both you know, strive to, to share a truth, and, and maybe they have different kind of tools to get to that truth, but that, that idea that photojournalism, it's published, and it goes away, and there's a new thing, and there's a new thing, and and art isn't, isn't very instantly reactive the way photojournalism is, right? Yeah. The way that archive that you've built of southern Afghanistan, and Kandahar, and the Arctic, right? That soldier, you know, eating the grapes, that's an image that, the meaning of it grows profoundly over time as the war becomes kind of more distant. And, and I think, you know, to me, the, the way this Arctic project strikes me as an archive uh, is, is one of a kind of profound sadness that, that I keep thinking about, which is what, what will happen when it's gone, the, the way that's just reinforced by those melting ice sculptures.
1: The, the rabbit holes we could go down here for conversations to go on for hours, but there is a loneliness to the photographs and true experiences, I really feel like that means a lot to me that that I was there on this time, on this date, and you can look me up and you could read what I believe in and you know what what you know what I did and how I, I put that photograph together instead of guessing you know it, it's it's funny to think that we think of photojournalism just as photography, but what I think about is, I mean, there's traditions in, in art before photography, like if you think of Goya's Disasters of War, uh, here, are, here is a, 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 an archive of images of human rights violations by an army that invaded Spain. And if you look at the Manet paintings, suddenly Manet's painting like people breaking rocks and people working in fields. And right. I do think that the intersections, it can feel new, you know, it, it, this is nothing new. Like I, I could, as much as he doesn't call himself that, I could say Manet was in some ways a visual journalist. He was documenting real workers doing things, you know? you know. I think that these are all sort of historic visuals. And I think it's, I'm just kind of in some ways working in that they're just different. The bookends are moving with time of, of the tools <laughs> we used to do this kind of stuff, I think.
0: Yeah. Louis Palou, thank you so much for sharing this work with us.
1: Thanks for having me in your community.